Hi everyone, it's Matt here from the Curious Task Team, and I'm here to say I think I was wrong about something. For a long time, I was skeptical of claims that we were living in an especially polarized era, and I thought the political divisions we saw were similar to ones we'd seen at many points in history. However, the last few years have convinced me I was wrong about that, and I now view political polarization to be one of the biggest threats to a free society. Back in January of 2020, Alex Aragona had a conversation with the philosopher Kevin Vallier on his book, Trust in a Polarized Age. I think it's an incredibly prescient conversation that talks a lot about the trends that we now see have become amplified, stronger, and to me, much more concerning. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Must politics be war? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Kevin Vallier. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Valley. Kevin is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University and Director of the university's program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. He's the author of many things, including two books, Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, and Must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society, the latter being the one that will inform a lot of our discussion today. Kevin, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, thanks so much for having me on. So, Kevin, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. So let's get right into it. I'll kick it over to you. Must politics be war? The basic setup of the book is to look at some of the conflicts, particularly in American politics, the fact that in particular, we have so much trouble trusting people who have different views from our own. I mean, with respect to things like religion, um, we, we're pretty good at being tolerant, not amazing, but we're pretty good. But with respect to ideology, we're not very good at all. Uh, and the thought is that we're in essentially in the United States in particular in what I call a cold civil war. Hmm. It's not a, it's a cold war because we're not openly attacking each other. It's a civil war because we're against each other. And the fundamental problem is that it's both the result and the cause of falling trust. And my worry is that as our ability to trust each other and to trust our institutions falls, there's going to be a whole host of really bad consequences, things that everyone would want to avoid. So this raises a kind of skeptical challenge, which is that, well, is, are there any institutions that could help us to trust each other? Are there any institutions that would facilitate ideological toleration? Um, and my argument in the book is effectively that liberal institutions alone uh, have the capacity to sustain trust between diverse perspectives, and that's because they give each group and individual a certain measure of freedom of various kinds to live out their own lives in their own way. Now, people say, oh, well, that's a very liberal sort of individualist way of talking. How, how do you bring the non-liberals on board with the solution? And the answer is that they care about liberty as well, and in particular, they care about not being dominated by people with other ideologies. And so, in effect, the, the case that I'm making is that even the non-liberals should be on board with a kind of classical liberal order. The state doesn't interfere too much with robust freedom of association. That's what's especially important to non-liberals. If you have the Catholic non-liberals, they want, don't want to be dominated by the Muslim non-liberals and vice versa, right? Um, so, the thought is that that's our sort of best bet. And once we have that society and we see everyone doesn't see the, the system as ideal, but they see it as, as better than a lot of the alternatives, then we could see that each group can go along with those institutions, not with complete conviction, but with a whole great deal of it. And that is the basis that we have for trusting each other because we think, look, 
we're both in some way committed to these institutions. We see them as at least compatible with our own moral points of view. And so we go along with them freely and from conviction. And that's a, that's the basis for trust across perspectives. And we end a warlike politics because we can drive trust. So liberal institutions drive trust. Trust eliminates or greatly reduces a warlike politics. So that's essentially the problem and solution. So what you're saying is politics doesn't need to be war. That's right. It often is, um, but it doesn't have to be. That's why I say it's must rather right. than is. Um, because, you know, we're trying to look at uh, a situation where we're mostly in a war like politics now and ways in which we might get out of it. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the thought is a liberal politics, truly liberal, consistently liberal politics isn't war. And the problems that we're having, I think, are in a lot of cases are, um, refusal to be liberal. It's our failures to be liberal, um, that are causing a lot of, uh, these problems of divisiveness. And I think that's a, that's a great, great shot right out the gate there. Lots, lots to unpack. Yeah. So let, let's drill a little deeper back to the first part of what you're saying and then go from there. Yeah. Um, so y- you said it not in the same words I'm about to, but we often hear that, um, you know, America is more divided than ever in quotes. And you talked yeah. real quickly about there's sort of like a cold civil war. So, so what do we really mean when people say America is more divided than ever? It really is easy for an anchor to sit on CNN and say, oh yeah, we're all divided. Look at these polls. But, but what, what does this really mean? Yeah. So, so, so this, is important. Actually, we just brought out one of the uh, country's leading polarization theorists, Nolan McCarty at Princeton. And he has this nice book, Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know, where he divides up the different phenomenon or problems that we're talking about um, in the the following categories. Um, First, there's polarization, where people are increasingly disagreeing with each other. They're moving apart. There's also sorting, where people who already have certain views are spending more time with people who are like themselves. Now, both of those phenomenon can be understood as uh, either based on issues or based on tribe or affect, emotional affect. So you can have issue-based polarization where people are moving away from each other. You can have issue-based sorting where people are sorting based on their views. But you might also have affect-based polarization and sorting where people are joining tribes and they're coming to hate each other more and that could be either that they're joining red tribe or blue tribe or that they're sorting better if more effectively into just interacting with fellow red tribe or fellow blue tribe. He calls all of those phenomenon basically partisan divergence. And there's a good bit of evidence that all of them are happening. Um, but the bigger moves are on the effective side, that people are engaged in more tribal sorting and tribal uh, departures from divergence from one another. But there is issue-based sorting, particularly at the elite level. So particularly uh, among politicians right. and the highly informed members uh, and tuned in members of political parties. So the, the center of the country isn't especially polarized, but those who are tuned in are. So there's a bunch of phenomenon going on. It's important to distinguish between them, but I think the evidence is is there that we're experiencing these phenomena, particularly at the elite level? And you mentioned right at the beginning of your book that, uh, and I think this is a, this is a key thing that cushions all of this, or I guess it rests upon a lot of this as well, especially the tribalization, which you're talking about. That, and on top of all this, there's so many ways that people can so easily insulate themselves away That's from right. each other. And That's right. Maybe you can get a bit into that as well. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of work that's been done by political scientists going through the. Uh, these various claims. And there does about, particularly about the silo effect, right? People, you know, assorting where they're only interacting with people who are, who are like them. And we're still learning stuff every day. There's more and more studies coming out all the time. 
Um, it looks in particular like um, cable news is the worst thing as far as creating silos, polarizing and warping opinion, convincing people of things that aren't true. Um, the social media probably has some effect, but it looks like the people who are involved in social media are actually a little bit better than the people who just consume cable news. Because at least on Facebook, you'll encounter someone you disagree with a lot more often than you will, even if, you know, if you're watching one of MSNBC or Fox News. I mean, they do have other people on, but right. they're always outnumbered and, you know. Um, so there are silos. There's different ways in which cultures create silos. One of the difficulties that we're really starting to see is um, – Religious affiliation and practice is starting to get caught up in American polarization. So in most countries, like in Canada, my understanding is that um, secularization is does not have a partisan bias or not very much of one, um, whereas in the U.S. it has a lot. So the most of the people that are secularizing in the U.S. are white Democrat males. Uh, and, uh, you know, what turns out actually that if you become Republican, you become more likely to attend church. There's a nice book called from politics to the pews, which is arguing that a lot of American religious and non-religious affiliation is in fact driven by people's political affiliation. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So people find themselves at church, far fewer people disagree with them about politics or they're not at church. They're in their, you know, some other sort of purely secular activity, they're much more likely to be interacting uh, with people who have, have their views. So it's so in this specific example, it's, it's actually the political tribalization that's kind of creating other ways people divide out their life effectively, right? It's really, really sad and disturbing because right. what you want to depolarize is people to have multiple allegiances. Right. You want people to have cross-cutting identities. But if polarization is sucking everybody up into red tribe and blue tribe, and it's politicizing all aspects of life, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, we're just going to we're just going to be stuck in this in, in this difficulty. And the, the problem on top of that is for reasons we don't entirely understand, um, social trust or trust in most people is falling in the you know, since it's been measured from the early 70s, about half of the country said most people can be trusted. Now we're down to around maybe 35 percent. That's actually a really big decline. Most countries, social trust is very stable. Hmm. Uh, as a measure. Um, and there are so many goods that come from social trust. For instance, like more economic growth. It's huge. You trust people more and more exchange. Um, there's also, I think, uh, there's better policy in certain kinds of ways that I can, I, can, I can elaborate on. And the worry is that there's, at least this is my worry, and I'm hoping to sponsor studies to uh, look at the connection between distrust and polarization, that they're making each other, they're making each other worse. Right. So the, the trust theorists have their own academic dialogue. The polarization people have their own academic dialogue, but they haven't really been put in communication with each other. But I think it's plausible that distrust and divergence are in a kind of causal feedback loop in the United States. So, um, for instance, if you're more polarized, particularly effectively, you're less likely to trust uh, people in the other tribe. If you trust people less, you're more likely to retreat into your own tribe. Um, and, uh, with respect to different issues, if you don't trust other people very much, you may be less likely to change your own opinion in response to the fact that they have a different view. Right. So I think it's plausible that these two phenomena are actually driving each other. And I, and my understanding from the little bit I've seen is that the time series are consistent, but I haven't done any correlational because I'm not a data person. So we're trying to get the studies, uh, uh, sponsored and funded because the data is all there and all the trust data is there, all the polarizations data is there. We just need people to, and if there's someone listening who you know <laughs> wants to help out, that would be great. But uh, my fear is that we both see falling trust bad, greater polarization and sorting, usually bad, and then they're making each other worse. So 
Um, because if you, I mean, if you think about it, polarization in itself is not really that bad if people really trusted each other. They said, oh, we disagree more. We need to do some things differently to accommodate those disagreements, right? Um, right. So it's it's low trust, I think, that makes polarization so so destructive. Um, there are other things that make it bad too, uh, but point is, um, we've got these two bad phenomena, and I think they're connected, but I can't prove it yet. And real quick on making sure we're crystal clear in our terms, social trust. What is that? Yes. You quickly said it, that yeah. people trust each other, but obviously this isn't just we mean like uh, I trust you to like hold my wallet for a second. Or maybe it is that. Well, what exactly is social Actually, trust? Actually, part of the way social trust is measured is with a wallet return test. Um, oh, okay. That's, that's yeah. interesting. I just uh, stepped into that. Yeah. So um, social trust or what's sometimes called generalized trust is, is measured by particularly survey data okay. where you ask people, can most people be trusted or can you never be careful, too careful in dealing with people? Mm. So you ask people a series of, of, of questions like this. So it basically looks like people within their nation and whether they trust, say, the average stranger they interact with. So it's something like that. Whereas political trust would be trust in, say, democracy or government or maybe some sub part of this do you trust congress or do you trust trump or whatever the institutions that um, we live with precisely okay. yeah so social trust is the big deal um it's it's the big thing because the 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 data is that it has all kinds of really good effects political trust we've got a lot less data on its its effects even though we know a lot more about its causes um so the main thing i'm really worried about is social trust falling um, but I do think social and political trust are themselves causally uh, related. So your ability to trust the average stranger you meet can oftentimes be measured by a, a survey, a question. You know, uh, if you left, lost your wallet on the street, how likely would it be that someone would return it to you? Right. Um, and that's uh, that's the idea that what we're trusting people to do. And I make the case in the book is that we're trusting people to do what we collectively think is the right thing to do. To follow certain kinds of social norms, not stealing, not engaging in fraud, not harming, not murdering, maiming, all those kinds of standard moral rules that we all not only believe, but that we know that one another believe and that we hold each other accountable to. A kind of what, what uh, Jerry Gauss calls a social or Strawson did too, a social morality. Okay. And it's a, and it's a realistic trust too, right? Like if, if yeah. there's a high degree of social trust, uh, it's not that people think 100% of the people around them right. are trustable because obviously we understand some people are going to be criminals, et cetera. It's generally speaking most right. of the time. Am I correct about that? Yes, okay. that's, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. It, it's essentially, if you want to think about it, it's, it's societal trust or generalized rather than particularized trust, uh, trust in, in strangers in your society or something, something along, something along those lines. I have a more technical definition in the book that I, because I'm trying to bring together philosophers who study trust with the empirical people. And that requires uh, a lot of work to put them into conversation, but that will do for, for, uh, for the discussion if they want to go more into it. Um, I, there's not only the book, but I have a paper online that's free that, um, where people want to look at the trust data, it's kf.org slash Valier at the Knight Foundation. Um, and you, um, so, so I have written more accessible versions of, of this up, um, because the, the book gives the detailed argument that I think is necessary to vindicate my thesis, but I've also sort of done more popular versions of the, the line. One quick sub note on social trust, though. I noticed at one point in the book, you did use the term justified social trust. And yes, I don't right, want to get into right. the weed to, weeds too much, but that would be yeah. contrasted with an, unju in, in, in yes, an unjustified yeah, social yeah. trust. Maybe we can get to that for a second. Right. I found it interesting. Right. So, so what grounds trust is your belief that others are trustworthy? So the thought is it's really hard to trust someone if you don't think they're trustworthy. So trustworthiness is the evidence 
that would justify trust. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, it might be the case that, you know, someone's manipulated into trusting. Right. So other people aren't trustworthy, or maybe they had a belief that others weren't trustworthy and they were brainwashed or manipulated or lied to and thinking that they were. So when I talk about social trust being justified, what I mean is that it's grounded in people's actual trustworthiness. Got it. Okay. In particular, what I call their social trustworthiness. It's their disposition to comply with these public rules rather than just, you know, their own private code. So all of that to say, are we at the point? Are we heading towards the point where um, opposing groups r- truly feel that they have no way to coexist, but rather that one must win over the other, whether yeah. by political means or other means, right? That could yeah. get messier. But like some people like to dismiss a lot of the fire that comes from politics, the heat, uh, as, oh, that's a lot of uh, hot air, a lot of smoke yeah. and mirrors, whatever. But but underneath, it, it sounds like what you're saying is is you truly feel we actually are heading to a point where people just feel like they have to win, that there can't be a political consensus or a majority rule, but it, it's either a, a total win or loss in, in many people's that's lives. Right. Yeah, so um, I don't think all is lost, and our trust levels have fallen, but they aren't that low. Um, interestingly, I think there's some—I don't know as much about regional uh, variation as uh, I would like, but there are some weird, there are some weird factors that seem to figure into it. Um, so Swedes are extremely trusting in Sweden; they're also very trusting in Minnesota. Um, mm. We don't entirely know what causes social trust. Um, there are some things we know that can destroy it, like corruption and communism um, are both devastating for social trust, um, particularly corruption in the legal system. Right. Um, and the phenomenon, probably what I think is going on in com- communism of secret police. But by it, we know some things that will take it out, um, but we don't know uh, a lot about its causes. Um, but if it falls too low, you know, you may get stuck, right? You get stuck in a low trust equilibrium. You can't get out of it. We're not in equilibrium. So Mm. the hope is that we can arrest it and get to a high trust equilibrium where, you know, move back in the other direction, short of things that seem to temporarily increase trust a lot, uh, like a war. Right. Um, and not, not, and not a civil war. So, um, we're not too far gone. Things have gotten bad, but they're not irreversible. We still do have a lot of sort of political piece with respect to certain of the rights practices that we have. When I talk about a rights practice, I mean something like free speech is a right, people exercise that right. Freedom of religion is a right, people exercise that right. So we still have pretty broad respect for freedom of religion, um, but it has been compromised so, somewhat with the progress of, of uh, LGBT equality because there's been all these controversies about how to balance respect for religious freedom with respect for LGBT equality. Um, and there have been controversies over free speech, even though most people do seem to sort of still broadly endorse it. So what's going on is that there are certain rights practices that, that we're maintaining fairly well, um, but we do see threats. And we do see threats based on a lack of, of trust. I think there is a lack of trust between uh, particularly LGBT activists and religious conservatives. Um, and it's causing, um, it's causing some real problems. Um, so the Fairness for All Act just went up, which is an attempt to extend protections for LGBT citizens, but also to include religious exemptions for certain groups. It looks like a, a pretty, I'm still looking into it, but a pretty good compromise of the sort that I think would help to restore trust. Because, you know, if the two compromise, then they say, OK, maybe you weren't monsters after all. Maybe you weren't, you know, rainbow oppressors or, uh, you know, secret bigots or, you know, whatever they 
they call each other. So there's different. So there's, I think there's certain kinds of policies that we can adopt that right. increase trust. So the Utah compromise, the way the Mormons just said, look, we're just going to solve this problem right now. Um, we're going to have protections against all kinds of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, but we're also going to uh, have robust protections for religious freedom for people who uh, disagree. Um, and it's, it's been a really, it's been a really excellent uh, model, in, in my opinion, for mutual trust. So a lot of what we have to do is we have to find certain kinds of policies and laws that are trust increasing, right. that can convince one another, okay, you're not beyond the pale. You're not, you're not monstrous. Um, and I, I think it, it, one thing that a consequence of uh, uh, lopsided secularization in the United States is that it's becoming harder for people to comprehend each other as well-intentioned. Okay. Um, so I think one thing is it's very hard for us in the United States in particular to see disagreements about sexual morality as reasonable and, 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 and sincere and informed, um, which is weird because one of the points the left has often made is that sexual morality varies greatly across time and culture. Um, which you might think would make you a little more sympathetic to the idea that people could reasonably disagree about these issues. Um, unfortunately, in the U.S., that's not really the direction that that things have gone. The progress of sex equality uh, has been really important. Um, but at the same time, um, it has oftentimes proceeded with the idea that anyone who disagrees is, a, is the moral equivalent of a racist. And it's caused a lot of reaction because particularly with Christianity in the U.S., it was able to take on anti-racism very easily. Right. Um, it, took a, it took way too long. But I mean, theologically, it was a much easier sell. Mm. Um, and uh, but with respect to sex equality, um, things are just much more difficult. And so you have millions of sincere people of faith who have really serious concerns and they're not driven by hate. They're just driven by the fact that this is what their church has taught them and what it has always taught them, uh, say for centuries or thousands of years. Um, and I think it's been destructive to treat those people as equivalent to racists because you can't trust the racist, right? I mean, you, you can't compromise with the racist, right? So we have a lot of ways in the culture of dehumanizing each other to one another. And of course, they're not limited to the left by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's been a lot of stuff on the right with sowing distrust in Muslims, um, sowing distrust in immigrants. Right. Um, and the odd thing is, you know, with the Republicans in the United States, I mean, the sowing distrust among immigrants has actually been really destructive because you'd think they could win over these pretty conservative Catholic voters if they really made the uh, attempt. Right. Um, so it's been dumb for everybody to just sow distrust in each other because it ultimately hurts everyone in the end. In the long run. Well, yeah, as you said, like with given the current climate, people aren't approaching these discussions as, OK, this person may have a political view or an ideological view. I completely yeah. disagree with, but, you That's know, right. they still are another person with with equal worth. Yeah. I may disagree with them and, and think they're silly, quite frankly, but but we're at yeah. least going to hear them out and have the discussion. You are correct in saying that it's easy for anyone to see that the way a lot of people are approaching the table or actually I should say they're not even approaching the table. They're like, yeah. I can't even That's listen right. to this. Right. Even, right. even if it's. Right. We're not talking about something uh, crazy like Stalinism or fascism, even stuff in the right, right, right. <laughs> anything in the middle. We're just right. talking about the view that Barack Obama held ten years ago, right? That, I mean, that's like exactly. that's just like the discussion, you know, that we're that that we're trying to have, right? Um, and it it is it very fascinating to me um, 
what we think we can reasonably disagree about and what we don't think we can reasonably disagree about. I mean, what what sort of drives our judgments that someone's beyond the pale and that someone isn't? So one of the things I talk about in the book at some length is about the sources of disagreement. And this is something that both the left-wing liberal, John Rawls, and the – I don't like the term right-wing liberal, really, um, but um, I guess the market-oriented liberal, uh, Hayek, both both talk about it at length in their important works. Um, but I like Hayek's explanation better than Rawls's. Rawls is looking at certain kinds of features of moral and political judgments that make um, political judgments – difficult and reasonable people disagree about them. We call them the burdens of judgment. But Hayek's theory of cognition, I think, is actually even better in this regard because he points out, as your listeners will know, that the information that we have available to us is what I call diverse and dispersed. So, you know, everyone has their own perspective. There's information particular to their lives that um, we don't know about, that we'll never have access to, that we can never collect. And not a lot of people have applied Hayek's insights to moral disagreement. But that's one of the things I'm doing in the book is to say, look, I mean, if you think that information is diverse and dispersed, you think that moral judgments are going to be they're going to tend to diverge. Right. Um, and if you if you know that, if you understand the way the brain, you know, it's the, the way that you know, our society sort of. Uh, works in terms of the distribution of, of, of information, you'll expect there to be moral disagreement among people who are sincere and informed. And so what I say is we're oftentimes victims of what I call the illusion of culpable dissent. So we think that other people disagree with us because they're bad, right. they're dumb, or they're evil, or both. Um, but if you if you think about the sources of disagreement, I think it becomes pretty manifest that we are overestimate the amount of, t- of the, the, the frequency with which dissent is culpable right? rather than innocent and uh, sincere. And, and another thing, too, that I've noticed, uh, you let me know if you agree, is that yeah. a lot of people overestimate. I should say a lot of the people who spend a lot of time thinking about this sort of thing overestimate how much time other people who disagree with them have thought about it. Yes. They think that they've, uh, yes. they've they've written a PhD thesis on how much they disagree with, you know, pick any issue, and they're yeah. evil because of this. And oftentimes, as you said, the way knowledge works and the way people simply, you know, quite frankly, become who they are, it's just you will never yeah. know. And sometimes they just arrive at a certain conclusion. It could be as simple as, um, like like you said, it's just a belief they've they've been raised with. And, That's right. And there's and to them, there's no malicious intent behind it, but they simply believe it. And it would it's yep. certainly unproductive to uh, tell that person to back to my metaphor for get away from the table don't even come to the discussion if they just simply believe it. And and, you know, one thing we often miss is that there are lots of people on the fence about these issues. I mean, the one Mm -hmm, reason mm -hmm. that we know from political ignorance, people change their views so much is that they just, they either don't know certain things or even if they do, they may just not know what to say. I mean, so for instance, you have, I would think, you know, a lot of times, you know, that there are a lot of people who are thinking to themselves, well, I think we should treat people as equals, but I also think that that people's freedom is important and, you know, I just don't entirely know what to think. And so when you demonize people who disagree, um, those people get – they're homeless, right? They can't say, well, I don't know. Like from their perspective, they don't want to join what they view as an extreme yeah. camp. Yes, that's uh, on right. One and side a or the other. Camp, and a mean camp, right. right? Like just like, oh, look, they're just not nice people, right? Right. Um, a huge amount of, I think, tribe, tribal judge, uh, 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 political tribal affiliation um, uh, is is the perception of bad character on the part of the people that you really don't like. That becomes salient, right? You see a Democrat do something evil, 
are bad or nasty. You think they're all like that or vice versa with with Republicans. You see a few Republicans do bad things. You generalize it like a political, a political stereotyping effectively of personality. A huge part of the book is just trying to get people to see that we should. I mean, Rawls Rawls has this nice line that the, the goal of his political liberalism is to apply the principle of toleration to philosophy itself. Mm. And you might think about what I'm trying to do is to apply liberal toleration to ideology, to political ideology, um, to say, look, we can treat political ideological disagreement much like we treat religious disagreement. We have to do it within a broadly but not completely classical liberal framework. And, you know, you have to make arguments to people that are social democrats or conservatives that the, that the classical liberal arrangements are their second choice. Um, just like we did with religion, right? The Catholics want a Catholic establishment. You know, the, the Protestants want a Protestant establishment. Allah comes along and says, look, well, I mean, he's not the nicest to Catholics, but eventually, right, people come and try, they apply this generally. And the Protestants say, eventually, actually early on, many of the Protestants and Catholics preferred to fight so that one of them could win. Mm-hmm. But over time, they came to accept that it would be better to have toleration than to have the other person on top. And I'm saying the same thing is true about ideology. Um, like a, like an ideological pluralism is, is kind of what you're saying, right? An ideological toleration. Yeah. 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 Now, now, importantly for your listeners, this doesn't get libertarians off the hook because libertarians can be ideological as well, as we all know. So, you know, it does require something from the libertarian, too. Um, and what it requires, I think, is for the libertarian to consider uh, her preparedness to compromise um, on certain kind of issues in a principled way. So I think for many and many libertarians – they don't think about their view as like them needing to compromise because they think, well, I'm the one against force. I'm the one against violence. So, you know, why why would I ever compromise on that that issue? But I kind of want to apply toleration to libertarianism, too. So mm-hmm. the libertarian says, you know, look, taxation is theft. Um, but like 99 percent of people in the country reject that view. Um, how I want to live on cooperative terms with them. I want to be able to trust them. I want them to be able to trust me. So what is that? require of my advocacy right and back to what we were saying before too if if you're that kind of libertarian and you meet someone who's okay with taxation you don't say you're an evil communist and you're an evil statist right, right i mean right. that's 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 what we do right? right i mean i've been doing libertarian stuff for i guess just about 20 almost 20 years now and um that has been uh you know the common thing is that they're all statists they're all of a piece and you know they're all they're all bad um, and corrupt in virtue of, of, of liking the state. And I can tell you that that is not a very good way of engaging people. And I think the classical liberals that are actually on the ground that are involved in trying to convince people of stuff, like one of my best friends um, is working on marijuana uh, legalization in Missouri. And he just, he, you know, he, almost everyone he's interacting with is not, a liber- not libertarian. And he's learned a great deal about how to actually interact with state legislators. He says, look, there's a few of them, indeed, that are sociopaths. Most of them, they really love attention, but there's actually a sizable number of them that actually mean well, and they can be convinced. Um, and I think libertarians have this sort of view of as politicians as these monsters that we actually make ourselves less effective because we're not willing to engage people um, that we think of as bad sadists. So the lessons of the book apply to libertarians as well. Like, that doesn't mean you can't still believe libertarianism or even radical libertarianism is true. Nothing, I, nothing about liberal toleration says that Christianity is false. 
Right. Right. And nothing about ideological toleration says that libertarianism is false. The, 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 what I'm saying is, let's ask the question. Suppose libertarians wanted to trust non-libertarians. Suppose non-libertarians wanted – suppose libertarians wanted non-libertarians to trust them. Mm-hmm. What institutions could we all agree to that we could all be on board with so that we could live life together well? Um, and I, and I don't talk about this in the book, but what I do say when I, when I'm talking to classical liberal or libertarian groups is that think about the issues where it's just a screaming outrage from your ideological perspective versus the things that you think are true or obviously true, but it's a little bit harder to blame people for not being on board. So compare, for instance, um, the Iraq war with abolishing the Fed. Okay. Right. But the Iraq war, you know, several hundred thousand people are dead. Uh, with the Fed, it's like really complicated to get the point. You have to be really into Austrian business cycle theory. Like it, like being like resenting or being outraged by people who are for the Federal Reserve. That's kind of strange, really, because, I mean, the arguments about it are pretty complicated, Um, whereas for war, it's just like, don't kill people with a BS pretext. Um, So I think if libertarians say, look, here are my non-negotiables, like for everyone, there's going to be some things where they say, look, I can't give on this. And libertarians say, look, when it comes to certain basic liberties, civil liberties, war, um, certain kinds of killing, extreme paternalism, those can't be justified to me. Okay, but there are other things where you think, well, you know, I don't have to burn down the state because the Federal Reserve continues to exist. You know, Uh, other people really think that we need the Federal Reserve and I just disagree. I just have to convince them. I just have to make the argument. Um, So we have to distinguish between the things that are truly deep down on non-negotiables, the things that we say, look, I can't even cooperate with other people because this evil is too great. I have to fight it versus the things where you think these are bad. They're destructive. Um, but I can live with, I can live with people thinking and doing things a different way. So, uh, you know, the, the libertarian has to distinguish between the true issues of conscience, the conscience of the libertarian right. versus the things that are important, but that you, you're not going to say, look, I, I can't be on board with the social order unless I get my way on this issue. And I think that that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we will do yeah. so now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Kevin Vallier. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Joe Aragona, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Kevin, before the break... You were pretty much uh, talking about how, when it comes to the point of ideological toleration, that if people want to come to the table to discuss their ideology, it shouldn't be an all-or-nothing conversation. That is to say that a a core component of ideological toleration is to really separate, as you were saying, those issues of conscious versus like the non-starters. That's right. So there are some issues that are going to be say, non-starters for libertarians or conservatives or progressives. So progressives, a non-starter something they can't compromise on is some degree of redistribution. Right. Um, And I think libertarians can't say that, oh, well, there's no amount of taxation that I could, I can live with. Um, Suppose for instance, that 
the government consumed, this is just an example, right. 5% of GDP. There was some kind of flat consumption tax where necessities were exempted that funded it. Um, there was redistribution in the form of a modest um, and basic minimum income. From a traditional libertarian perspective, that's injustice. But suppose we had such a society and we were trusting each other on the basis of it. Then I think at that margin of libertarianism, like getting pretty close, the libertarian can see, oh, well, look, I mean, yeah, I want to live with non-libertarians. So one of the ways I got into this project was actually a discussion, uh, a talk that I saw Walter Block give. Uh, I mean, as a radical sort of Rothbardian libertarian and anarcho-capitalist give, where he was talking about, well, what would we do with the social democrats in libertarian, you know, and Kapistan or whatever, right? What would we do with them? And he gave the example of Rosie O'Donnell being for gun control. And, you know, it's an old example, but, um, and, you know, she would be locked up because she was proposing aggression, right? And I thought, that's not the right answer. That's, I mean, what, how, suppose we have a libertarian society, how do we want to live with the non-libertarians? That's a big problem. It's something that's heavily under theorized in libertarian thought. So you think, I'm trying, so what I'm asking the listener who may be skeptical of my, my thesis to consider is to say, look, think of all the non-libertarians in your life. How much do you care about getting out to get along with them? And how much are you willing to give? In order to preserve that, and also consider that whether whether that person in, in your example likes it or not, there's more non-libertarians probably than there are libertarians, depending <laughs> yeah. on the room. Depending on the room they're in, of course. I'm not talking about yes, the libertarian right. caucus meetings. But you get my point. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And even if you know, say, 25 percent of Americans lean libertarian, it's not a huge. It's not by much. Um, right. And, and and you know, I mean, one of the things I don't say in the book. I will mention in a footnote in the next book, but I, I have a paper on that I never published, um, is that I actually think um, that libertarians uh, should be treated in politics a bit like the Amish. They have a kind of global objection to certain things the state does. And I think that libertarians as a small radical group that have a, an outlier view like the Amish do um, should be given certain kinds of, of serious exemptions. So, for instance, exemptions from having to go to public schools like the Amish have, exemptions from paying into Social Security like the Amish have. We already have that. So what I think of, and this is going to be a weird idea for your listeners, but I think, well, what if libertarians started to conceive of themselves as a people? united in certain types of deep conscientious convictions and that they insisted on exemptions uh, on the basis of conscience from the state. Um, and that that may mean, for instance, that they be given, and this is a fraud example, but what the Native American reservation system is supposed to be. Now, what it is, what it's supposed to be. This, the thought is, look, if, if people want to, to live in a kind of enclave where, you know, or a, a state um, or a zone or a reservation or something like that, and I think all radical groups, when they're small enough, they could be globally exempted. So I actually think that it's libertarians could even make the case within an order of public reason that there could be an argument for secession or a global exemption for libertarians. So I'm not saying libertarians just have to acquiesce in everything. They just have to not tear down the state. Just to clarify here, we are talking about the the uh, types of libertarians you're referring to before that have the ultimate and complete objection yes. to the state in that's any right. regard. Just so we're that's all right. Clear. That's right. That's no, no, then that's important because, you know, most of the libertarians that are, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would say among reflective libertarians, the it's the radical views tend to tend to predominate, or at least they have in decades past and things have changed in the last 10 years. But um, yeah, no, you're right. Um, so. 
that's, I mean, that's the question is you just got to, you got to ask yourself, look how valuable it is to be able to trust people who are different from me. What is going to be necessary in order to keep that trust going? And what does that ask of me? Something I didn't say, uh, bring up before, but I thought of it as you're talking about some, the word compromise. To yeah. me, it seems that the value of compromise isn't just the literal compromise you get out of it at the end of the day. Yeah. It's the process that allows you to approach that compromise. Uh-huh, so that's right. I think a lot of people are too focused on uh, when the idea of compromise comes up, they think, oh, well, what am I going to have to give up? What to gain? What are they going to have to give? To, you know, yeah. it becomes the end game ultimately. What's yeah, the balance yeah. going to look like at the end of the day? But when it comes to back to toleration, it was what you were saying, there's a lot of value in simply coming to the table to discuss what that compromise can look like. If a compromise is not reached, there is still a way that that process can encourage a form of trust. As you said before, you mm-hmm, could leave mm-hmm. the table and go like, you know, that per- that person wasn't so bad. I, I disagree right. with them, but they that's actually right. at least came to the table to discuss a compromise and that's how it yeah. could build up again. Right. Yeah. No, I think that, um, uh, a lot of our trust levels sort of empirically complicated, uh, uh, how social interaction leads, leads to trust. But usually, usually like if you, um, you have good experiences with an institution, uh, your, your trust levels can increase in that institution. So a lot of people's trust levels do respond. I mean, particularly the trust in particular institutions responds a lot to what they think the institution does. Um, social trust mm-hmm. is more complicated um, because it's harder to confirm and disconfirm generic trustworthiness. Um, and also there may be big five personality trait influences on social trust. Some of them may be locked in a bit, but, but the idea is that there are a lot of processes that we can use to try to convince each other that one another are trustworthy. And the main mechanism that I talk about at, at length in the book is respect for one another's rights. So the thought is that, you know, when I respect rights, say free speech, people will say lots of things I think are dumb and bad and awful. And, um, they may even convince people to believe the wrong thing. Um, but because I respect those rights, I show other people, okay, look, I can, I can be trusted because I'm not just trying to get my own way no matter what. I'm not secretly waiting until the time I can take over. No, I, I'm really am willing to defer to you and to your judgment and to your way of life, uh, and not just impose, uh, my own view, even if that views libertarianism. Um, so that, the, you know, that's the, I mean, a lot of libertarians will say, well, I don't want to impose anything on anybody, but. Uh, from other people's perspectives, that's not what's going on. Um, if you remove, for instance, you destroy all uh, redistribution, for instance, with a more radical libertarian. I mean, a lot of people are going to see that as a pretty big imposition. Um, so the, the point is just that uh, there are a lot of different ways to restore trust. But one of the most important ways of restoring trust um, is our generic preparedness to respect the rights of others and to give them freedom when we really hate what they're doing. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, we're, it's such an important point with respect to First Amendment freedoms. Right. Um, and not just First Amendment freedoms in the sense that Congress may make no law, but like the moral, the moral practices associated with freedom of speech, like mm-hmm. on the university campuses, right? So universities restricting free speech, that isn't a violation of the Constitution, um, but we still think it's problematic because we we think that, look, it's not just a legal right that people have. It's like a moral right. Like people are, should be permitted a great deal of leeway to say the things that they think, and then they should be able to be criticized for those things. Right. And, and the same thing with freedom of religion. I mean, I think that um, – so so there are all these First Amendment freedoms that, that, aren't, uh, that are an issue. But there's also, I think, a great deal of mistrust sown by failure to respect people's legal procedural rights. So that it comes up with the police. Yes. So now we're getting a lot, you know, I mean, uh, black American trust is lower 
for good reason for sure in uh in 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 the legal system so um the thought is that it's not just respect for like free speech or freedom of religion, but respect for people's, you know, right to a fair trial, uh, rights against illegal searches and seizures. Again, as as you say, not not and not whether or not they have faith if that's on paper somewhere or it's a law yeah. that they should get that because it is. It's whether or not they yeah. can trust that that will actually happen or that the that's essence right. of the law and what it's supposed to mean and ultimately look like is actually going to be applied to that's them right. and give them their fair trial or their habeas corpus yeah. or whatever we're talking about. They have to be real norms. Right. Um, it can't just be what's on paper because the pa- paper can be ignored. So so what really what really matters is the norms that are in place and people's ability to rely uh, on their being followed and to build life plans uh, structured around those expectations uh, and to not have them disrupted. I mean, a lot of things that cause distrust is like you go in and you have certain expectations and then someone does some breaks, engages in some manifest moral violation. Um, you know, you're mistreated at a, you know, some kind of uh, government service uh, department or something like that. Right. Uh, your trust in that institution could fall a lot. So, um, you know, I'll tell you from doing looking at the empirical research, it's actually pretty remarkable um, uh, that um, people's trust in government can can really be af- quickly affected by their interactions with with civil servants. Um, um, so yeah, people, people's trust in particular institutions could be affected quite a bit. Um, one thing I haven't thought enough about yet, but I want to think more about is about how trust in media affects everything. Um, because your views about how institutions function are determined by the media and determined by how much you trust the media. So you're going to believe what they say. Um, so it, it turns out for instance, that people trust the government more when they think their economic well-being is increasing. But not necessarily whether it is, because people's views about their economic position are different than their actual position. Um, And if they could get reliable information, then you would think, okay, the government actually improves people's economic well-being by getting out of the market's way or whatever. Um, Then great. Um, But if people can't see it because they don't trust the media when they make basic economic reports, then that's a problem. Um, So, I mean… And I, I don't have a theory of this yet, um, uh, but an account of, of what norms we think the media should be constrained by in order uh, to increase their, their trustworthiness. I mean, I'll tell you, that, um, most of the trust distrust in media comes from the right. Um, and uh, some of that is because it's deliberately manufactured by distrust is deliberately manufactured by bad actors. Um, or ideologues, right. but there's sometimes where there are real, real problems where ideological homogeneity produces a kind of tone deafness to certain kinds of people and their interests um, that 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 lead to a lot of distrust. So, for instance, like one thing that happens also in the academy is that when things get too ideologically lopsided, um, you know, people. Uh, People become less comprehensible outside of that institution, and they're not represented well, and they're not treated well. Or they're not treated fairly. Um, and, you know, you may think, OK, look, we need more viewpoint diversity in this institution. Uh, and I think increasing viewpoint diversity in institutions is um, it's not always good. But right now, I think we're erring too much on the side of too little um, in the in the university system, but in the media uh, as well. And I think that's that's creating problems. Um because people do perceive that there's a kind of left-wing monolith uh, in the media and the academy because 
there mostly is. Now, I'm, I think many of the cases of unfairness or problematic stuff are manufactured, you know, fake outrage, you know, get people outraged or whatever to get them to watch or pay attention. So don't let me say I'm saying, oh, you know, all of these fears are true, just that sometimes they are. Um, and if you have more viewpoint diversity, you can do a lot better, I think, uh, creating trust because people feel like, oh, there are people like me in that institution. So here's an objection I think someone yeah. listening to all this might throw your way. They might say, okay, we've talked about social trust. We've talked about ideological diversity. We've talked about toleration. And of course, we all, I hope, listening like the idea that, look, I might not agree if I'm of a certain religion with someone who is a Muslim, let's say, or if I'm a different yeah. religion, I might not agree with a Catholic. But but if yeah. we can all agree that we disagree with each other, but nobody wants to have their way ultimately or is going to harm each other, then that's a good that's a good state of society. Yeah. Like I said, hopefully everyone agrees with that. But the objection is, what happens if someone comes to you and says, what about those who genuinely don't believe in toleration and don't yeah. believe in coexistence? Yeah. I know in your book you do address this, but let's address yeah. it here. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a difficult issue because on the one hand, you, you want to tolerate as many people as you can. But on the other hand, if you want to preserve toleration, you know, do you tolerate the intolerance? So this is a, you know, a paradox in liberalism that, that liberals have, uh, classical liberals have been dealing with since Locke. Um, of, you know, how he didn't, he didn't draw the line in the right place for who to tolerate and who not to tolerate. Some people say all Catholics, it's probably actually, um, it's Catholics who are committed to the Pope having political power, but not all were at the time. He drew the line of toleration in the wrong place and, and modern liberals do. So they draw it. A lot of my work has been on failures for liberals to draw toleration, uh, limits in the right place with respect to religious people and with respect to libertarians and conservatives. So let me give you an example. John Rawls and political liberalism, he wanted to apply the principle of toleration to philosophy itself, as I said. But he said first that religious people had to kind of subordinate a lot of their reasoning and politics to secular considerations or shared considerations, which I think treats religious citizens a bit unequally. But he was pretty tolerant of religion, but not enough. But he said libertarians were unreasonable. And Bob Nozick is down the hall. Uh, and so Bob Robert Nozick's beyond the pale. It's his friend down the hall. It's beyond the pale. I don't know. Actually, I don't think they were friends. I think Rawls didn't like Nozick, uh, even though apparently he was a super nice guy. Um, so Rawls says libertarians are unreasonable. Um, and I think he's just mistaken about that. So it's really hard for liberals, even the wannabe liberals, to draw the lines of toleration in the right place. So how do you do it? How right. do you do it? My view is that insofar as you can, you err on the side of including people. Um, but the, the minimum is a kind of reciprocity requirement. So if people say, look, the only terms of social life that I'm willing to accept are those where I'm in charge. And I'm not willing to accept that the same rules that go for me go for you. I'm making an exception for myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be treated with, with special privilege. Um, those are the folks where you have to say, well, look, it's not that you don't have rights. It's not that we're going to lock you up or anything like that. It's just that when you try to change policy in a way that makes you the hegemon, we're going to stop you and we're going to use force to do it. Um, if you want to continue to believe that or preach that or whatever, that's your business. 
Um, but that's the case where we don't compromise when someone tries to make themselves the hegemon. So if they can't, if the institutional arrangements can't be what I call in the book publicly justified or justified to each person, right? Um, then the idea is that when that when those policies are implemented, the people for whom it's not justified will think, look, um, I'm going to ignore these, or I'm going to ignore them when I can get away with it. Um, so the the hegemonic proposals are going to be destructive in lots of ways. Um, they'll not just we should stop them because the person's being, to use the Rawlsian term, unreasonable, um, but also because they're going to produce lots of bad effects in terms of undermining trust. So th- the basic limitation is whether people are prepared to live uh, proposed terms that we can all live on, uh, by as equals. Um, so that's that's where you draw the line. But I think there's a temptation for liberals to see religious people and to see libertarians and conservatives as not willing to meet that requirement, but in fact, um, they are far more often than you would than you would think. Um, so you know you have to be very careful about when you say, "Oh, they're unreasonable." You need to talk to them. You need to interact with them. You need to hear them out. Um, so yeah, my inclination, and I'm weird in this regard. I draw the line of the reasonable maybe more broadly than just about anybody I know. And part of that's just because my sort of lived experience as I work I like to say I I work with progressives, I worship with conservatives, and I internet with libertarians. <laughs> so my entire life, you know, of say from Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon, 48 hours, I run the gamut of religious and political opinion in the country. That's that's interesting you bring that up because I think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, of course, yeah. that all of them would say that they definitely don't want the other camp to have ultimate political right. power in any way. Right. They can all agree and have a nice conference on that, I bet, that we That's don't right. want you fully That's in right. charge. And so the thought then you say, yeah, but that means you don't get to be in charge either. Exactly. Um, and when people, you frame it that way, I do think it tends to get people to sort of stop because they know they're prepared to reason that way with respect to religion. But uh, asking them to think that way with respect to ideology is a new kind of thought. Um, but I think it, it's consistent. I think it's uh, it's an implication of toleration. Right. And I think it's it's damaging for, uh, you know, words often change in meaning. But I think people throw toleration around a little too much today as if yeah. it means you have to accept what yeah, other right. people believe. Like if someone, for instance, uh, is anti-abortion, for me to tolerate them doesn't mean I have to agree with that point of view. That's right. So that's, a, that's I think, a very important distinction as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think so. And I mean, a lot of it. Is when you have a disagreement with someone, there, there, I do think we are tempted to, in some cases, unless we have a, a shared identity with them, to distrust a little bit. Um, and it's important also to bring attention to the things that you, you agree upon when you disagree. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of different behaviors that people engage in that I think can be destructive of trust. Though we're, we're hoping to, my, my colleague Brandon Warmke is co-authoring a book on grandstanding. It's not the same thing as virtue signaling, but it's related. Uh, that's coming out next year. And um, we're think, starting to think about the ways in which certain kinds of grandstanding or virtue signaling uh, course in political discourse and create cynicism and distrust. Um, so, you know, one of the things we're thinking about is whether there are certain patterns of behavior that we should criticize on the grounds that they, they put people at odds. Um, so, you know, if you're an outrage manufacturer on social media, then that should make you subject to criticism because you're making it harder for people to comprehend each other. Because you're just trying to raise your status with your in-group by dunking on the out-group. That's the, the thought is that we may be able to eventually say, actually, here, here's the empirical work on like why this behavior seems to cause this kind of social malady. 
think we'll see more of those studies over time. So our time is winding down here, but I want to make sure we touch on a very important aspect of your book, although it yeah. starts getting more traction towards the end of it, which is everything we've talked about ultimately creates the foundation for what systems of rights and what political systems yeah. help us make politics need not be war. And I, yeah. I'll kick you off with your own quote here. So you say in the book, only liberal constitutional rights can be publicly justified. Non-liberal schemes of rights should be defeated. And then you continue on and say later, only liberalism can keep moral peace. And again, yeah. here for everyone listening, we're moving away from what we think is right and wrong personally, et cetera. And now we're talking about political systems that enforce and uh, That's right. balance everything we've talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, the the rough idea is that within current populations, you want something like liberal democratic capitalism with a modest welfare state. So liberalism includes freedom of speech, press, religion, procedural liberties, um, you know, freedom of association, um, and it includes the right of private property. So socialism, I do think, uh, makes politics war because it requires coordination on a central plan or some kind of extensive form of coercion um, that all people can't agree to. On the other hand, if you abolish the welfare state entirely, um, then most people are not on board with that because they think it's cruel to the poor. Uh, so the thought is that basic private property rights, including a right to own private capital, are publicly justified, can be justified to each person, even if they don't think it's ideal. Um, so I, I argue that socialism is out. Um, I argue that pure capitalism is out. Um, so I do, I do think essentially what you end up with is, is with a kind of, uh, uh, a, a kind of free market capitalism, but that is, uh, supplemented with, especially with respect to anti-poverty programs. So in, in the next book, I'm going to go on through in a lot more detail, like the ways that, you know, certain kind of, uh, regulations can't be justified and the way they affect trust by means of say hurting economic growth or something like that. Um, and, and there I'm going to, I get into a lot more detail about the way the regulatory state in particular uh, can sow mistrust by inviting rent seeking um, right. uh, and corruption um, and also dragging down growth rates, uh, which lowers uh, trust in, in government. Um, uh, but there are certain kinds of social programs that I think if you got rid of them, people on the left would just think the whole system is corrupt. Like if you abolished Head Start and all food stamps, they're just not on board anymore. They just think, look, this system is not taking the, the interests of the poor even remotely seriously. It's rigged for everyone at the top. I'm done. I'm out. I don't trust the system anymore. It's rigged. Um, I'm going to push for radical change. And that wouldn't be an unreasonable thought if nothing else was touched. So, for instance, if we get yeah. if we decide to get rid of food stamps and all welfare programs and don't touch anything to do with, I don't know, the billions of dollars worth of rent seeking that happens in the defense industry, let's say, right. then that would be a reasonable thing to think. No, that's right. It would be a reason to distrust because it would suggest that we weren't even sincere in our own view. Right. Because the libertarians and conservatives failed to push against the government handouts for the powerful before they push for the powerless. And that's actually... You know, a lot of libertarians, I think, have been tempted because it's sometimes easier to cut social programs and to cut largesse from the powerful. And so we thought, oh, well, we'll just take whatever cuts we can get. And right, right. and one way, like you might think, oh, that makes sense. But on the other hand, you may think, well, this has actually led people to think that we um, just like the rich. Um, and it's actually made it harder for people to trust us. Puts It puts aside a lot of the classical liberal heavy lifting and goes for the easier stuff, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's, I think, been... 
uh, been bad for us. Now, I still think that people are magnificently unfair to libertarians, in particular in this weird, these days, sort of conspiratorial language about how we're behind everything um, and how, you know, neoliberalism and all this stuff on the, both the left and the right are like, you know, like we're in charge or something, which is insane. Um, I mean, just the basic facts of how, how few elections we've, we've ever won. So, you know, it, it, people do have false beliefs about the effectiveness of, of different uh, ideological groups. Um, uh, but the thought is that suppose that people did know the facts. I mean, suppose that people did really understand um, uh, the influence of others and, and um, their actual you know, trustworthiness. Uh, you've got to focus on certain, you need markets, you need, you need a limited welfare state, you need the basic liberal freedoms, and you need democratic government to cover those things that rights don't prohibit, right? So the government doesn't vote over free speech or freedom of religion, but on those issues within which we think we can uh, get along, you know, not optimal from everyone's perspective that can be justified to everyone. And and I think the way you tie that very nicely in the book too is, uh, well, I should take a step back and say some people that don't disagree with that, they hear welfare state and their heads explode. Um, it's important yeah, to note, right. and I'll, again, read, read you back to yourself, where yeah, you're yeah. not trying to build a utopia when you talk about balance and toleration yeah. and social trust. No. You say, my arguments appeal to no heroic assumptions about human history or human nature. And then you yeah. go on to say later, I have not assumed that humans are basically good or that they will agree about what is good. And I think that yeah. that quote right there is key to understanding a lot of what you're saying here today is yeah. you, you truly are invested in this idea of the social trust and toleration and balance. This isn't about creating yeah. what you personally view as your utopia. Right. And I think that's key. No, that's right. And I mean, I think it's, it is, it, it is key because I come to this, I come to the table, um, as a, as a, uh, theologically orthodox, uh, Christian and and as uh, someone who has wavered between radical and moderate forms of libertarianism for a long time. And so the system that I advocate is not what I think is the best way for society to operate. Right. But I do think it's the best way to be reconciled to people who disagree with me. So, you know, I did a, I did, um, a discussion with uh, a Christian libertarian group where I made the point. I said, look, we're in a position where almost nobody agrees with us. And we would love to see society be very, very different. We would want it to be much more religious and much more nonviolent, much more peaceful. Um, in fact, we, most libertarian Christians are almost pacifists um, and all partly on theological grounds. And I mean, I'm almost there, um, almost there in terms of what I think would be theologically and philosophically morally ideal in terms of like there should be like almost no violence in society at all. Um but I know I have a radical view, and I care about being reconciled to people that don't have this view. Um, but I'm deeply theologically and philosophically worried about violence of any kind. Um, so, yeah, I just want people to know, like, I'm not just coming in and saying, here's my view. My view should, you know, my view is the compromise. No, it's not. I'm actually compromising quite a bit. I would like for society to be dramatically less violent than what I advocate in the, in the book as the basis for trust. The hope is we can get the trust. And then we get to trust. Then we could say, look, let's try, let's, let's try these experiments in living. Let's see if we can do things differently now that we can trust that each other aren't, you know, horrible monsters. And the socialists can have their uh, experiment and we can have ours and we can see how, how they, how they go. 
that takes us right to the point where our time has wound down. But I, but I think that is an excellent place to try and tie this off. And, and the way we do like to tie it up at the end is, is give the guest the last word. So we always like to end it by asking if we can bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So I will let you have that last word, as I said, oh, as we always do. What do you hope, Kevin, are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether or not politics needs to be war? I know we talked about it a lot, but if we can yeah. really wrap it up, what would we say? First, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. I, I hope I hope you want to come back, actually. You have another book coming out. We should chat. Oh, oh, that would be amazing. Great. Um, here's, here's the basic idea. We're losing our ability to trust each other. And that comes with a lot of cost in terms of our ability to live together, to have a growing economy, to avoid certain kinds of violence and corruption. And regardless of your perspective, libertarian, conservative, progressive, doesn't matter. Losing trust is a problem. It's a big problem. And we need to ask ourselves, what institutions do we need to create and sustain trust? Because that's the way we end a war like politics, is with creating lots of trust. So must politics be war? Well, we have to look at the institutions that are trust-sustaining. And the argument of the book is that more or less classical liberal institutions are unique in their ability to drive trust across perspectives because they allow different groups to live out their convictions to some degree, if not to the maximal degree. Must politics be war? Not in a truly liberal order. And so if we want to restore trust, we need to push for more liberal arrangements. Kevin Valley, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Yes, thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I thought it held up really well. If you're interested in hearing more from Kevin Vallier, I recommend you check out episode 69 of our podcast, uh, which is a follow-up on the idea of reversing polarization, and also the more recent episode 197, in which Kevin talks about the new religious threats to liberalism.